I ask you if you have your Bibles this morning to turn with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, wow, what a great setup there. Thank you, Pastor Kevin, to our choir, to our orchestra, and we blessed to have them lead us. And I'm thankful as they have sung Psalm 24 for us this morning. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm very, uh, could not be uh, more happy about that. Man, I was so thankful and blessed last week by the message of Pastor Jeremy that brought he brought to us from Psalm 67. What a blessing that was. Um, thankful for his love for God's Word, his love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course his love for people and the uh, passion that he has to get the gospel to those who have not heard. And I want that passion not just sometimes when you preach or when you lead, it's not just that you want people to hear the words you're saying. Of course we want that. We want the Spirit to use God's Word to change our hearts. But they also must see the passion with which we say it. Because if it matters to us, then it will matter to others, right? And so the heart we have behind it, and I'm thankful for Pastor Jeremy for that and his leading us. I'm also thankful that next week we'll have another guest preaching for us, Jason Hodges, a good friend of our church, having been sent out here from Taylor's uh, First Baptist a few years back to plant a church in Boston. Now Jason is the director of New England Church Planting for the North American Mission Board, and we are going to be thrilled to hear from him. Not only that, I just want to say one more thing. This week is an important week in the life of our students in our church. This week we'll be sending our students off to camp for the summer. And I can say to you honestly that I would not be here today if it wasn't for summer youth camp. Now I don't mean that in the direct sense, I mean that in the ministry sense. It was summer youth camp where the Lord shaped me, fashioned me, and called me into the ministry. And so our desire this week should be the same for our students that are going, that we'll be praying for them and lifting them up. And in light of that, immediately after this service in our Welcome Center, there'll be some, I've got one here, there'll be some bracelets with students' names on it, and we'd love for you to just pick up one. And uh, you can pick up 10 if you want to, but what we're asking you is that you take those and wear them this week to remind you to pray for that student throughout the day as they are uh, at student camp this week. And we want to lift them up in prayer. What a blessing it is for us to be able to send them all because of um, our, your faithfulness even in giving and other things, but just to be able to go and send them. We want to pray that the Lord works in their life. So please remember that this week as they are going. Be praying for Josh and the volunteers that are taking them. Psalm 24, I'm going to read it together. I ask you to read it with me, so I'll read it for us um, this morning. Psalm 24, starting in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? 
the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunities that we have to hear it proclaimed and preached, and we thank you for those who lead us in that. God, we thank you that you have not left us guessing as to what you would require of us, but you have told us clearly in your word. And so this morning as we look to Psalm 24, please show us again by the power of your spirit what it is you would have us to do, who it is you would have us to be. Show us again, Father, our desperate need of a Savior and how you have provided for that very need in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. And we praise you for this opportunity to look together to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, most of us are familiar with Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm. We've probably memorized it. We've probably learned it. We could, we could spit it out, even if it may take a little coaxing, because we've seen it cross-stitched on the wall and everywhere else. So we know Psalm 23, and then if really if you go back even one more, Psalm 22 is one that I'm sure is familiar to all of us. Uh, Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross, where it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one that Jesus quotes on the cross. We're familiar with these two, Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. But I would say that not many of us, or maybe not as many of us, are familiar with the 24th Psalm the 24th Psalm. But the 24th Psalm, I believe, forms a trilogy, if you will, for us here. It forms a trilogy of such that points the reader from Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24, the reader or, in that context, the one who sings these Psalms, it points them to the Messiah. Therefore, just as Psalm 22 is what we call a messianic Psalm, one that points us to the Messiah, just as Psalm 23 is one that points us to Jesus, a messianic psalm, so is Psalm 24, a, a, a psalm that from beginning to end is going to point us to the Savior who is coming for us, just as Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 does before this. And so for us then to understand this psalm, what I would like for us to do is maybe put it in context and understand the occasion and the use of it. It's always good for us to, to get where this psalm is, where it's from, and what it's doing, what it's meaning for us in its context. This psalm, as it tells us, was written by David himself. It starts there in, in the first part of it, Psalm 24, a psalm of David, even in the title. It's written by David after he had become a king. Most commentators believe that it was written on the occasion of the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. In other words, if you remember that story in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen, it had been captured and taken by the Philistines, and it was away from Jerusalem. And so after Saul dies and then David becomes king, one of his first acts is to go get that Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to Jerusalem. Now remember the significance of this. The significance of the Ark of the Covenant was important. It was a box, if you will. You can see the description. It's, uh, by the way, uh, it probably looks something like it, but not exactly like what Indiana Jones won back, if you know what I'm talking about. And it's not in a warehouse somewhere in, in New Mexico either at this moment. 
But what the ark was was very important to Israel. The ark symbolized the presence of God with his people. And so the ark was what went before his people whenever they marched, the presence of God marching out before them. The ark is what went before them whenever they went to war and went to battle, the presence of God with them. In reality, the ark is simply a footstool, a box, if you will. And what it symbolizes was that the king was on his throne in heaven and his footstool was on earth. And here is where the Lord has planted himself. So the ark was placed in the front of God's people as it marched out into the wilderness, into the promised land, in the front of God's people as they went to battle, in the front of God's people as they went to face the nations at war. But it also was placed there in the Holy of Holies, in the the synagogue or the tabernacle, if you will, in the center representing the presence of God with his people as the temple or the, the synagogue was in the middle of the camp. And in the middle of the synagogue and temple was this footstool of God, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God with his people. Therefore, it was of the most importance. And for that ark to have been stolen and taken away from God's people was, was shameful. It was sorrowful. It was a, a symbol that God has not with his people. He's not present with them. So David's desire first when he became king was to go get the ark back and bring it back so God again can be with his people and that symbolic presence would be there. So David does just this. And as 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5 tells us, as the ark is coming back into Jerusalem, as it's coming back, marching back into the, the city, David begins to sing and celebrate before the Lord. As chapter 6 verse 5 says, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs, with lyres, with harps, with tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. In other words, they began to sing praise to God for his presence is coming back. And here, here Psalm 24 is believed that song that David wrote for the return of the presence of God to his people. Later in the New Testament days, this this picture was kept. For in New Testament times, this, this psalm was sung every Sunday. After the Sabbath was over on Saturday and on Sunday, they would sing this, calling God's people back to worship. So at the temple, they would sing this, calling them to worship. So this psalm has a rich history in Israel. While it may not be the most, uh, the psalm we remember the most, like Psalm 23, this psalm has a rich history in Israel, one that was very familiar to the people of God. And when we look at it, we see that it has three distinct parts, I believe. Part one teaches that we have a creator that we belong to and we must answer to. Part two calls us to come and worship that creator And then part three invites us to look to our king, conqueror. And so, as we look to this psalm, let's take each one of these sections in parts to try to understand the flow of it. The first thing we want to note is that the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's. This is where the psalmist begins. Chapter 24, of course, Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. While many people may have questions about creation or the creation of the world, the Bible remains absolutely clear on this issue. 
While many people try to come up with their theories or wonder how we got to where we are, how we were created, how we began, the Bible does not pull anything aside. The Bible does not become uh, very vague on this. The scriptures become very clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it reinforces this truth throughout all of Scripture. Over and over again, we see this truth reinforced that in the beginning, God created everything. Even in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In other words, he's saying not only in this beginning God created the heavens and the earth with God at that time, the Spirit was hovering in Genesis, the Son was there as well. They all were together creating everything. Without them was not anything made that was made. Or Paul, when he's preaching in Acts chapter 17 at the Areopagus, preaching to those who were Greeks by nature and haven't heard anything of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where does Paul begin? He begins with creation and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, the Lord has made it all. He has given us life. He has given us breath. He even determines where we live, what our boundaries are. The scripture is clear about who created this world. This is the foundational principle of all of, all of scripture. And if that's the case, if this is the foundational principle of all of scripture, there's no wonder that it is under attack. There's no wonder it's under attack today. As the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This, this very teaching, this very understanding is under attack. And why? Because it speaks to authority. If God created everything, then he gets to make the rules. Me and my brother grew up. We grew up playing games against each other. And y'all know how you play games. You play games and you make a game out of anything you can possibly make a game of. But what we would always argue about were the rules. I don't know if y'all have ever argued about rules. Most of y'all probably don't argue and get along with everybody. But we constantly argued about the rules. Who made the game? Who set it up? Who did this? Who gets to determine the rules? Because whoever the game belongs to, they get to set the rules. They get to determine what the rules are. And such it is for the Lord because what the Scripture teaches us is that God made the earth. He has established it upon the waters and upon the sea. Therefore, he has creator rights over it. And he gets to establish the rules. He gets to determine how we play this game of life, if you will. He gets to determine how we are to live, what we are to do. He sets the law. He sets the standard. God sets it all. And see, what happens for us sometimes, and for some people, they want to go back and realize that in order to come out from under the authority of God, they have to come up with some other way that this place was created, some other way that this world was fashioned, some other way that it was formed. But the Bible is clear from the very beginning. It is God who spoke it out of nothing, who made it, and therefore he gets to establish the rules by which we must live. Again, many don't like this. They don't want to be under God's authority. And understand this truth, brothers and sisters, friends, love, listen, understand this truth. The reason why creation and the creation of this world 
out of nothing by the one true and living God is under attack is because people don't want to be under his authority. They want to be under their own authority. They want to set their own rules. They want to set their own standards. And so this is under attack. If they can change the way they think about creation, then maybe they can realize they don't have to answer to God. So they come up with all kind of alternatives. But Psalm 24 wants us to start here. Wants us to start on this truth. Wants us to start on this foundation. Wants us to know here from the very beginning that the earth is the Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. He is the one who has founded it. He is the one who has established it. Therefore, he is the one who sets the rules and who sets the standards. By the way, this is the beginning of the gospel itself. The gospel begins with an understanding that we have a holy creator God who has set the rules and standards by which we must live. By which we must live. I remember watching uh, when ESPN started coming out with their 30 for 30, their documentaries, and back when you could get them for free, now you got to pay for them, I don't do that. And so I remember watching them, and I remember one of them when they were talking about Miami and Miami football in the 1980s, and Jimmy Johnson comes on, and Jimmy Johnson's coaching them, and they had some problems with some breaking the rules, and Jimmy Johnson stepped up and listened. He said, listen, let me tell you all something. There's two things you can do. You can do what I tell you to do, and you can do what I allow you to do. That's it. And so it is, ultimately, as Jimmy Johnson may be confused, so it is ultimately with the Lord. What we are and what we can do are what God tells us to do and what God allows us to do. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and those who dwell therein. And as Psalm 24 makes clear this is not just for israel this is not just for those there in jerusalem this is the world and those who dwell therein that means that our god who has created everything is not only the one who sets the standards and makes it all he's the one who is worthy of our worship if you believe genesis 1 1 just like if you believe Psalm 24, 1 and 2, if you believe these passages, then I want you to understand that the rest of Scripture should be easy. If you believe these truths, then the rest of God's Word should be easy for us to follow and believe. God has created everything. God has made it all. He has fashioned it. He has formed it. And now He has told us we must live under His authority of it. And He's going to tell us how. How can we draw near to him? If God is the one who's established it and made it, now what is it that we are to do? And here in the second half or second part of this uh, psalm, we see that the Lord gives an invitation, an invitation for us or a call for us to come and worship him, worship this creator God. And who can worship him? Who can please him? Understanding if God has made it all, he's fashioned all, we must answer to him. He sets the rules, he sets the standards. And now, who is it that can approach him? Who is it that can come and climb the holy hill of God? Who is it that can ascend to it? Who is it that can come to him? And now the Lord is giving us an invitation to do just that. Who shall ascend the holy hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? We as a people, we love how-to manuals, don't we? 
Not really. I mean, some of us do. Some of us don't look at them and we mess everything up. But when we need to finally put something together, we look to the how-to and we find the instructions. And nowadays, you can find that anywhere. You can go and, and, and figure out how to do anything as you look on the internet or whatever it may be, and it teaches you how to do something. And so if we think and consider of God being the creator God, the one who is above all things, the one who's established the earth, the one who is worthy, the only one worthy of our worship, that we must be near and be close to if that is him then how do we get there and the lord's going to tell us who can ascend his holy hill who uh, can stand in this holy place the lord is going to tell us this idea of ascending is an idea of worship going up higher psalm 15 by the way parallels this perfectly and it seems as though the Lord is giving us this how-to manual. And as we love those, we are eager to hear who can ascend the holy hill. And then he goes and he tells us, he who has clean hands and a, and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. How can we ascend the holy hill? Who is qualified for this? The one who has clean hands. The one who has a pure heart. The one who does not bow to any false idol but lifts up his, and does not lift up his soul to what is false. The one who does not swear deceitfully. This is the one, as the scripture says, the one who does not do these things, who has, the one who has clean hands, pure heart, does not swear, does not lift up his soul to what is false. This is the one who will receive blessing, righteousness, and salvation. This is the one who seeks him. As we go through this, we recognize some problems, don't we? Who can ascend the holy hill? The one who has clean hands. This speaks to the one whose actions are pure whose hands are pure, whose actions are pure. And, and, and friends, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've gone through the Ten Commandments together, hadn't we? And we recognize when we see this that if I were to ask anyone in here to raise your hand if you've got clean hands, to lift it up, how many of you have clean hands? I think all of us would have to be honest that our hands have not always been clean. So we go to the next one. He who has clean hands, he who has pure heart. The pure heart speaks to our motives, our desires, what we want more than anything else. And what we've seen over these past few weeks is that this heart is deceitful above all things. And if none of us have clean hands, then most assuredly none of us have pure hearts. None of us truly are seeking after what is right or have the motives that God always desires. We have given our hearts over to false motives, given our hearts over to self-righteousness, self-promotion, selfish ambition. Let's go on. Clean hands, a pure heart, one who does not worship what is false. One who does not bow down to what is false. How quickly do we turn to things that are not truly God and we give our worthy and we give our worship to those things? How quickly we bow down to idols or the things of this world and put them in the place of God. Do we have clean hands? None of us do. Do we have a pure heart? None of us do. Have we given ourselves over to what is false and, wor and worshipped what is not true? Most assuredly, each and every one of us have done this, right? But not only that, we got one more chance. He who does not swear deceitfully. 
just in these few verses as we are excited to hear how we can ascend the holy hill of the God, the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who sets the standards and the rules. We're excited to hear how can we get near him? How can we worship him? How can we ascend that hill? And then all of a sudden he just breaks us down. The one who has clean hands, that's none of us. All of us have, have given our hands and our actions over to what is not true, what is impure. The one who has a pure heart, that's none of us. All of us know that our hearts are deceitful and wicked as the scriptures teach us he who does not bow down to false idols that's that's all of us we've all given ourselves over and put what is not god in the place of god in our lives in our hearts he who does not swear deceitfully none of us have tamed our tongue in such a way that we have not lied that we have not sworn we have not used it in a way that does not honor god or please him just like that the psalmist says who can ascend the holy hill God who sets the standard says, these are the only ones that can come to me. These are the only ones that can worship me. These are the only ones that can enter into my presence. The ones who have clean hands, the ones who have a pure heart, the ones who do not bow down to anything other than me, and the ones who speak and use their tongue for truth, not for lies. Those are the only ones who can climb my hill. The one who does those things, he will receive blessing. He will receive righteousness from God of his salvation. And such is the ones who seek the face of God of Jacob. When we read this passage, do you not get the fact that no one can ascend the hill? There's not one of us in this room that can ascend the holy hill of God. There's not one of us in this room that can stand in his presence, in his holy place. There's not one of us in this room that is qualified. We have disqualified ourselves by our unclean hands and our impure hearts. We've disqualified ourselves because we've bowed down to what is not God. We've disqualified ourselves because we've spoken what is not true, what is false. We've sworn deceitfully, as it says. There is no one, no one in this room, no one in this world, no one anywhere that can ascend the holy, holy hill of God in their own strength and in their own power. For they all have disqualified themselves, and that includes me, Josh Powell. As this section ends, it ends with sadness. As this section ends, it ends, in some sense, with hopelessness. It's like John in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, whenever that, that scroll is there and the seal is on that scroll, and who can open that seal? And he looks in heaven, he looks on the earth, he looks under the earth, and no one is qualified. Who can ascend the holy hill of God? None of us can. No one is qualified. Psalm 24 teaches us just what Paul told us before, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And left to ourselves, we are hopeless at the bottom of the hill with no will to climb, no power to climb, for we are not worthy of it. But not only that, we are helpless because we can't do this in and of ourselves. And with that, you get the first two sections of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. It belongs to him. He sets the rules. He sets the standards. And the only ones that can climb according to his rules and standards are the ones who have clean hands, a pure heart, who do not bow to what is false and do not swear deceitfully. That's the only ones who can be blessed and find redemption in him. And when you get to the end of that second section, there is sadness looming over us. We hang our heads because we realize, we realize that none of us can climb. 
None of us have it. And just as the gospel begins with a holy God who's created us and made us and fashioned us and sets the standards by which we must live, the gospel also teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That we as men and women have rebelled against his truth, have rebelled against his standards and turned away from them. We don't have clean hands. We don't have a pure heart. We bow down to what is false. We swear deceitfully. We use our tongue for what is not true. The Bible teaches us over and over again that God is holy and man is sinful. And we must see this and understand it in order for us to understand the goodness of the gospel. And the goodness of the gospel is in Psalm 24. That's why that pause is there. Pastor Jeremy did a great job last week of describing what Selah means. It's this uh, pregnant pause, if you will. It's this rest that you take in the midst of it. But you take that rest. Why? Because you know the most important beat is coming next. And some of us, when we read Psalm 24, it seems disconnected. Like it, like there's two different things going on. You have the first six verses here talking about who this is, and then that last little bit just seems odd connected to the first, but not when we understand it in light of what's happening here. When we understand in light of what's happening here, we see that there's a creator God who sets the standards, and we as people have not met those standards. We cannot climb. We cannot stand. We cannot be in his holy presence, for we are unclean in our hands and our hearts and our mouths. We cannot get there. We cannot know the blessing of God. We cannot know the salvation of God. We cannot know the righteousness of God in our own power and in our own strength. So that sadness looms over that first half. And that rest, that say lie, if you will, causes us to pause and say, what's going on here? Is there any hope? Do we have any help? And then we hear it. Lift up your heads. The call here in the last part of Psalm 24 is a call for us to not work. It's not a call for us to get up and do something. It's not a call for us to get up and offer some sort of sacrifice. It's not a call for us to do anything else. It just simply says, look. How easy is it for us to look? How easy is it for us just to glance and see what's coming up the hill? See who is ascending. And here we see the third part of this come alive in Psalm 24 as it calls us to look to our king. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. Psalm 23 is the psalm of the resurrection, the one who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death out the other side. Psalm 24 is the psalm of the ascension of Jesus Christ. For years, the church assigned this psalm to be read on Ascension Sunday. That Sunday that we celebrate the Jesus, the Jesus having spent time after his resurrection on earth, ascending into heaven. I remember growing up as I was called into the ministry, there was a little album that was put out that introduced me to one of the greatest pieces of Christian art in history, Handel's Messiah. That album was called The New Young Messiah. And in that, I was introduced to Handel's Messiah. You know Handel's Messiah from the Hallelujah Chorus, but maybe you haven't heard it in some time. And I love what Handel does as he goes through the life, the whole story of Scripture in his, uh, in his Messiah, in this musical piece. And there when it gets to his death, he sings Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. And then when it gets to his resurrection, he sings Job. I know my Redeemer lives, for he is alive before me. And then when it's time for his ascension, he sings Psalm 24. 
And Psalm 24 then gives us the picture of those of us standing outside the gates of heaven, outside the holy hill of God with no will to climb, no power to climb, no hope to climb. And there we recognize that we can't get in there. We can't be a part of that. We can't do it. Hopeless and helpless before God, we do not deserve to be in his presence and then in the midst of our defeat, in the midst of our recognizing that we are hopeless and helpless, the Lord says, look, here he comes. That's him there. That's the one who can ascend the holy hill. That's the one who can climb. That's the one who can get into my presence. That's the one who has died for you and for me so that we are no longer hopeless and helpless, but our Savior, Jesus Christ, has ascended that hill for us. Look, lift up your heads, O gates. Don't be sad any longer. Here he comes. Look, lift up your heads. It's the king of glory that's entering in. And why is he the king of glory? Because our Savior, our Savior climbed another hill for us, a hill called Mount Calvary on our behalf. He entered into our trouble, right? We've talked about that before. He entered into our sin. He took on our swearing deceitfully. He took on our dirty hands. He took on our idolatrous hearts. He took on our uh, unpure lips and tongue. He took all of those and there he crushed them. And so those of us who were unrighteous before now can have righteousness. Why? Because our Savior has ascended the holy hill for us. Lift up your heads and look. Here he comes. This song that we had a strong, hard pause of sadness turns to a glorious celebration of triumph. Not a triumph that we have accomplished in and of ourselves, not something that we have pulled off in and of our own power, but the triumph of the King of glory, Jesus Christ our Savior. And the reason why it looks so separate here. It's because it leads us to know that in and of ourselves, we could never ascend that hill. In and of our power, we could never climb into his presence. But look, there's one who's done it for you. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads. Lift them up, O ancients, Lord, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King. Look and lift up your heads. The gospel is clear in Psalm 24. God is holy the holy creator who sets the rules and standards by which we all must live, but we are sinful. We have turned from those rules and standards and we have not followed him in righteousness, but we have unclean hands and unpure heart. We bow down to what is false. We swear deceitfully. God is holy, man is sinful, but Christ, Christ is our Savior. He's the one who has ascended the holy hill for us. Look to him. My job as a preacher is to proclaim God's word in such a way that you would see. I speak so you see. My job as the minister of the gospel is I pray to the Lord as I pray that God help our people today to see the glory of Christ. Help them to see the glory of God in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help them to see him. And so I preach that you may see. And so Psalm 24 fits perfect with the proclamation of the gospel. The holy creator God 
has brought judgment to sinful men. But God has also provided a way of salvation. Look and see the King of glory. This psalm was sung every Sunday. So as many have pointed out, as many have pointed out, it was sung on that Palm Sunday, if you will. As the crowds were welcoming Jesus in, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Outside, in the temple, they were singing, look, lift up your heads, the King of glory is coming. But what's unfortunate is those that were singing it in the temple didn't believe that Jesus was the one. That next week, he proved he was the one. He proved that he is the king of glory that would die for his people. The king who would step off of his throne and become a servant so that he would die for his people. He proved he was that. And so today, the question for each and every one of us is which part are we with? Are we proclaiming, look, the king of glory has come? And are we accepting the fact that in and of ourselves we are hopeless and helpless? But Jesus is everything. That's simply the call for you this morning. Look to the King of glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Father, some may be here this morning who may not realize, know, or understand, but help them to understand now that, Father, in and of themselves they have no power to save themselves that you are the creator God who made everything and fashioned everything. You're the one who sets the rules and the standards. And so God, by your grace, help each and every person here to recognize that they are desperately in need of a savior. And before they get too hopeless in that, help them to look. Help them to look now to Jesus Christ, the King of glory the one who has died in our place, who has ascended that hill for us, and the one whom now we go into the presence of God in his name. So, Father, may no one leave here still hopeless and helpless, but may they leave here trusting in the King of glory, Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you want to trust in him this morning i'll be standing here at the front if you want to be a part of our church as we proclaim him to a lost and desperate world we'll be here ready to receive you may god's grace shine brightly in this place and in our hearts even now as we look to the king of glory